in our model where we are really focused on investing alongside well-established firms. So we don't invest typically if it's kind of an unknown investor leading the round. For us, if you come from an underrepresented background in the venture ecosystem and you can convince a Sequoia or Andreessen or Lightspeed or Excel to lead your fundraising round, then in our book, that's like a double proof that you are an extraordinary individual leading an extraordinary team because you're already swimming against the current. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the SIDCast. Sid Finkelstein here, and I am delighted to have as my guest today, Colin Van Ostern. Colin is a really interesting guy. He might be a name you might recognize because he's been in politics for some time, and you can call it, I don't know if it's a first career, but it is a past career for now. He ran for governor of the state of New Hampshire and came very, very close. In fact, the governor of New Hampshire today is Sununo. That's the guy that beat Colin Van Olsen, but not by much. It was extremely close. New Hampshire probably is a purple state and Colin was on the Democratic ticket. He came close, but he lost, but he had paid his dues and has had actually a pretty big impact in politics and government in New Hampshire. He was publicly elected twice to New Hampshire's five-member executive council, which is kind of like a board of directors for the state government. It's very, very influential as well. Well, in 2016 was the general election, as I just mentioned, nominee for governor of New Hampshire. He also earlier in his career helped several members of Congress, governors and U.S. senators in New Hampshire. He was supporting them and helping them get elected. And he was very, very successful at that job. He's been involved in education, higher education, entrepreneurial education. He calls himself an entrepreneurial general manager. And I think that's exactly right. He has a great deal of experience leading high growth ventures and teams actually across many different sectors. He was the guy that worked pretty extensively in the founding executive team at Southern New Hampshire University, SNHU or SNU as it's known which has become one of the top two or three universities in the U.S. in online education, especially focusing on non-traditional students and graduates nationwide. And he was really one of the innovators there. He now is president and chief operating officer of Alumni Ventures, which is a network-powered venture capital firm. Just last year, 2021, was the third most active venture investor in the world, which is unbelievable. It's a really cool idea. He is spearheading along with some other people, these venture capital groups that are kind of like affinity groups around different universities. And so there's one at Dartmouth, there's one at MIT, there's one at, by now, hundreds of universities around the country. They're often alums that are investing in the venture capital fund. They get access to startups by students and by alums of the same university. So there's a natural affinity and a really interesting way to grow to support founders of startups and grow business in an entrepreneurial way and doing it in a way that connects with people. You know, so many people care about the universities they came from and are connected to that. We're going to talk about his career, his journey, the things he's done, how some of the skills that he developed in one area, like in government, for example, translate or don't translate to other work that he's had to do. And we're going to talk a lot about the venture capital industry as well. So it's kind of like a multifaceted thing. Colin is really interesting. He's a good guy. And who knows, maybe he'll want to run for governor or some other senior government position down the line. I know he'd be great if he did. But for now, he is one of the leading venture capital entrepreneurs, really, in the country in supporting alumni ventures. And it's a great chance to talk to him, learn from Colin, and kind of get into his mindset and his experiences. Colin Van Ostern on the SIDCast. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I am here with Colin Van Ostern. Hello, Colin. Hey, how are you? I'm great. It's good to see you. I've been wanting to have you on the podcast because you've done a lot of different things. Some things I think are really different and they're really interesting. I thought we could start with maybe the most unusual, which is running for governor of the state of New Hampshire in 2016 and more generally being in politics in the first place. So what got you into politics way back when this all started? 
Well, there are two answers to that. I had worked in politics very early in my career, during and right after college, and then had given it up, gone to business school, worked in the private sector for a while, and then ended up running myself. So really, there were two entry points. The first one is pretty mundane, to be honest, in that I went to high school in Richmond, Virginia. I was kind of nerdy, and I liked Model UN and that sort of thing, and I thought I might be a lawyer one day. I applied to college and I worked in the computer lab, which in the mid mid nineties. And I applied to colleges in either the Bay Area, which is where I'd grown up when I was younger, or in Washington, DC. And I didn't get into Stanford. I got a bad financial aid package from Berkeley and a good one from George Washington University. So I went to school in DC. And I think it's kind of just a company town, to be honest. I think like if you're in Hollywood, then probably you veer towards the entertainment industry. And so stumbled my way into a paid internship that was on a public affairs show and kind of got more involved and got interested. And so I ended up working in politics professionally for three or four years, maybe almost five years out of college, and then made a deliberate decision to leave it. And then I got sucked back in when I ran for office. (laughs) Sometimes people start their careers and it kind of falls into place and you had an internship, then you had an opportunity and it sounded like, this is interesting. I like it. Let's do it. Was it that type of thing or was it some kind of spark that said, this is really what I want to do? When I worked in politics professionally, it's an unusual environment where you can make a big impact relatively quickly. Political campaigns are short. You can build relationships quickly. You can have concrete impact on policymakers and their decisions and see in the real world what the implications are. There's not a long lead time. And there's also a dangerous and beautiful discipline about the fact that on election day, either you've got 51% market share or you go out of business. And especially when you're young and kind of early in your career, that teaches you a lot, actually. It's a very interesting learning environment because the time pressure and accountability and pace and all of that is very interesting. And it's exciting. I mean, I worked for people that I was excited by and often that I really believed in. And the woman that I moved to New Hampshire to work for, I was her communications director when she ran for the U.S. Senate. Her name is Jean Shaheen. She's the first woman in United States history to ever be a governor and a U.S. senator. Hmm. That's pretty cool. Having a relationship with her and helping along the way on that path in small ways felt exciting and interesting. Right. When you said that 51% thing, of course, I couldn't help but think well, those are the rules, but the rules were almost broken uh, not that long ago. I'm sure plenty of people are thinking, yeah, what a quaint idea, 51% you win. <laughs> it's actually not even a fair characterization because no. the truth is when I ran for governor, the guy who beat me got less than 50%. That happens too. Really, what you need is a plurality of the votes gap. Right. And actually, when it comes to federal president, because of the electoral college, it's all kind of much more complicated. Did you study all that stuff in college? I guess everyone does to some extent. A little bit. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I was kind of a nerd in high school. I actually started a petition in high school to try to end the electoral college. Really? Wow. Pretty nerdy thing to do when you're a sophomore in high school. (laughs) This also was kind of before the internet, really. And so it didn't get very far. Right. But clearly I was interested in thinking about those things. My favorite class in high school was American history. Did your parents have any involvement in public sector or politics, anything like that? No, they really didn't. Both were teachers, didn't really have any political background, really. Running for governor is going for the top job. I guess you were on the executive council. Mm -hmm. You can actually maybe describe what that is. I don't know whether other states have a similar type of system. They really don't. It's a very unusual system of state government in New Hampshire. For history buffs, it date back roughly to the pre-colonial era. The concept was that the colonists didn't trust whoever the king made be governor of the state. And so they set up this five-person council that more or less anything the governor does in New Hampshire, anything of substance, you have to have three of the councilors agree with in order for it to be done. So each of us represented about a fifth of the state, which is about a half of a congressional district. Anyone who's hired by the state at any senior level, judges, commissioners, department heads, et cetera, all of those confirmations, kind of like the U.S. Senate confirms a Supreme Court nominee. At the state level, it's the five of us who would confirm or not state Supreme Court judge or attorney general or other roles. And then anytime the state spends any money, anything over a few thousand dollars, all of those contracts come through the executive council. So it's kind of mundane and bureaucratic, but very impactful. And of the five of us served on the council together, two of us ran for governor against each other. Chris won, I lost. Another third of the five of us is now our congressman from the eastern part of the state. So obviously all of us were pretty connected and involved in New Hampshire politics. So what actually happens if three out of five of the executive council say no? The legislature passes something, what happens? So this actually is what prompted me to run for office in the first place, which is a very different thing. It had been a long time since I had not worked in politics when I actually ran myself. No one, even in New Hampshire, no one really knows what the executive council is or what it does, or most people don't. Because it's odd, other states don't work this way. 
And there was a month in June of 2011 when exactly what you just said happened twice in two meetings back to back. One is pretty mundane and one is seemingly very political, but both impacted me. So the first was the state had just gotten a big federal grant to study how to bring passenger rail from Boston up to the central part of the state. In New Hampshire, we have passenger rail up the seacoast, but not to the rest of the state. Huge economic development opportunities come when you do things like passenger rail. And we had gotten this grant. So it was our own tax dollars we had already spent that was going to come back to the state. It had been awarded to New Hampshire. The governor brought it to the executive counselor and the three of the five said no. And they said they'd rather send the money back to Washington, spend it on other states than have the government look at bringing passenger rail, really for ideological reasons. They didn't believe in the government spending money to do something like trains. And I thought that was just nuts. (laughs) That made no sense to me. Two weeks later, the same council voted and was kind of on the front edge of this, unfortunately, voted to shut off all federal funding in the state for birth control and cancer screenings and annual exams at state Planned Parenthood health centers. This has now become much more political. But at the time, also, that seemed crazy. And I went on a dog walk with a friend in Concord. It was just like one of those catch up walking along the river moments that everybody has. I said to her, we've got to get somebody to run. It was our counselor who had kind of led both of these efforts. We were brainstorming about people and she turned to me and she said, well, why don't you run? You know how this stuff works. And I didn't have a good answer for her. And I was working in a job that I liked at Stonyfield Yogurt. I was a brand manager there. It was an interesting company and I was pretty focused on that. But I kept thinking about it more and more. And I thought, that's a good question. Why don't I do it? And so I did. And I ran and ultimately got both of those things reversed in the time that I was there, which was really rewarding. And it gave me a sense of the impact that you can have. You got them reversed as part of the executive council. Yeah, yeah. Politics works in weird ways, but more or less, the guy who I ran against ended up bowing out before the election. I won very handedly. The district got very gerrymandered along the way. Basically, the other side kind of gave up on the seat and they said, we'll pack all the Democrats in the state into that one district. I won, helped others win as well. And there ultimately three of us passed the study for how to bring passenger rail and reinstituted funding for birth control and cancer screenings and annual exams for the state. Neither of those two issues ended there exactly, but it definitely had a big impact in that time period. So how did that morph into something kind of much bigger, which is running for governor? It really was an extension of those things. Unfortunately, on rail, it kind of closes that story in that you really have to have both. In New Hampshire, for it to work, you have to have a governor and a council that work together to get something done. Mm -hmm. For a while, we had that. And you can disagree. I disagreed with a governor from my own political party on a bunch of different issues, but you still work together to try to achieve common goals. When she left office to become actually the second woman in U.S. history to be a governor and a senator, small coincidence, it was very clear to me that if we didn't have a governor, who was advocating for some of those things that they wouldn't continue or happen. And in fact, that's what happened. Chris Sununu and I, who's our current governor, we ran against each other. Chris had been a big opponent of things like passenger rail. It was a very close election. We both had very competitive primaries that we won. And then we had an election in 2016. He won narrowly and we don't have passenger rail in New Hampshire. And honestly, if I'd won and he didn't, we would. And I think he would say the same thing. But that's just the nature of how politics works. What do you need to do to run for governor? How do you do a thing like that? I mean, a lot of people understand how to get a job in certain fields or at least some of the steps involved, but running for governor, how do you do it? Did you form a kitchen cabinet? Did you get some advisors right away? What happened? Like, how'd you go about doing this? Well, I wasn't starting from scratch. I served two terms representing about a fifth of the state on the executive council. And even though it's not well known, when you do that, you build up a set of informal advisors and supporters and you sure. go around the state, build those relationships in different communities to be able to build the coalition. And so that gives you a base of support. Very mechanically, the way that you win is you put your name on the ballot, which is easy, very basic requirements of how old are you? Are you a citizen, et cetera? How long have you lived in the state? In New Hampshire, for that office, you have to have lived here for seven years and be above a certain age. I think it's 30 or 35. That's the mechanical step one. Then you have to win a primary and then you have to win a general election. And winning a primary really means motivating enough people to come participate in a process they don't normally participate in. Everyone votes in the New Hampshire presidential primary because it's a really big deal. But most state primaries or local primaries Uh or for a city office, most people don't focus on it that much. So it's really about bringing people into the political process. 
That's actually different than the general election, where, frankly, not a lot of people show up to vote because of who's the candidate for governor in a presidential year. I mean, everyone who showed up in November of 2016 in New Hampshire was there probably to vote for or against either Hillary Clinton or or Donald Trump or maybe a third party candidate they cared about for president. But that's what got them there. So the primary is a little bit different. We had a great primary competitive race. I ran against a couple of people that I respect a lot. One handedly, it was a fun race. And it really was about getting enough people, motivating them to get out and vote on the primary day. So I just take a step back for a second. I forgot to ask, what did your wife say about this when you said I'm going to run for governor? We talked about it a lot. She's very, was and is very supportive of my involvement in politics. I haven't been involved in a while, but we had young kids at the time. So that was one of the things we talked about is kind of what's the impact going to be on them. I actually remember when we were started just after that in June of 2011, we visited a close friend of ours who had leukemia and was in the hospital and has recovered now, but it was a very serious case. She was there for a very long time. And we went down to Boston to bring him a women's and children's hospital had dinner afterwards, a little pizza place across the street, and you only live once. And both of us felt very strongly that when you see a way things can be better that you're passionate about and you have a clear picture of how you could positively impact things, then you shouldn't hold back. While I served on the council and while I ran for governor, it did mean there were times I was less present for my kids, especially in the nights and that after school hours, I was often away. I like to think that kids care a lot more about what you do than what you say. (laughs) That's my theory of parenting. And I think they saw a parent who was doing what he believed in. Hopefully that's a lesson that they take with them. Also, they were really young and that helped because they didn't really see millions of dollars spent on negative ads on both sides of my race. And they were pretty immune to all of that because they were still young. That part is good because that's not going away. It's just getting worse and worse everywhere. So you didn't win. It was close. And Chris Sununo, who's the governor now, is still there. Why do you think you didn't win? I mean, it's pretty close. So the state is one of these, what do we call states that are not exactly red or blue, purple or some such thing? Purple. New Hampshire is very much a purple state. Ultimately, I didn't win because I didn't convince seven or 8,000 people to vote for me instead of the other guy. 315,000 or so voted for me and 325,000 or so voted for him. I forget the exact numbers, but it's not that much more complicated than that. You know, it was a hard race. I thought I had a wind at my back, candidly, in the Mm -hmm. final steps of the race. 2016, it's easy to have that fade into the memory, but all of the internal and external polling not just in the final weeks of the race had me slightly ahead, though they did, you know, but had like Hillary Clinton often would be winning New Hampshire by five points or seven points at various polls. Ended up winning by a fraction of a point. The Senate race, it was very high profile where there was north of $150 million spent on that race alone, was decided by about 1,000 votes out of 750,000 cast. So there was probably a little bit of a headwind instead of a little bit of a tailwind. I was significantly less known than Chris. His dad was governor. His brother was a U.S. senator. It's a family name people know in New Hampshire and otherwise. Mm -hmm. So that probably made a little more uphill. And I think, frankly, I didn't offer a compelling enough reason for people to understand in a sentence or kind of in a moment why this race mattered to their lives and why having me as governor would be different, fundamentally different than Chris. And I think ultimately the accountability falls on the person whose name is on the ballot. And I could have done that better and I didn't. And I kind of assumed that some of the headwinds and tailwinds would matter. And at the end of the day, you got to be able to explain to people very concisely a very compelling vision and attract their attention in a way that they pay attention to it, even if it's for a few seconds. I didn't do that well enough. So when you say that, of course, that's important for leaders in any walk of life and certainly in business. And we'll talk about your work in venture capital in a moment, other things as well. How similar and how different is it as a leader in the political arena? And you have more experience in entrepreneurial, but let's just say corporate, even if it's a smaller, in terms of vision, in terms of any of the other big differentiators, because you saw it firsthand as a venture capitalist. I don't think that's exactly right to describe what you do, but you're leading a big venture capital firm. Yeah. You do see a lot of leaders. Here's the best analogy that I have heard. And it wasn't expressed as an analogy, but it really has resonated with me. When I worked for a while at Southern New Hampshire University and was helping build a new college there based on competency-based education, which was a fundamentally new model of academic credentialing, and it was kind of a startup within a big established organization. One of the gentlemen on the board was a very successful businessman, a man named Howard Brodsky, who lives in Manchester, New Hampshire. And he was meeting with a few of us who were kind of launching this new venture. And we basically had like a grant for a million dollars and a dozen people and an idea and a white. And he said, when you're launching something new, you have to have a vision of the future that you're so convinced has to happen that nothing can get in your way along the way, even failure, that you just have to drive through and be focused on that. 
that resonated to me as something that's similar to the beginning of getting involved in politics, because there are a thousand reasons it cannot work. But I think whether it's an entrepreneur or whether somebody running for office for the first time, you have to have that vision more than anything else, more than the money, more than the Rolodex, more than anything else. You have to have a vision that you are truly committed to following through on. And that feels very similar to me. The difference is not all, but most business work is far less public than most political work. So I remember after it was a unique election, but after the 2016 election, there were a few months there, I would go on a walk downtown to go to the CVS and somebody would stop and give me a hug. And they were a stranger who I didn't know. <laughs> and I didn't know if they were hugging me because they were sad for me losing or if they were asking for a hug because they were sad about what's going on in the country. And mm-hmm. I mean, that literally happened a few times where neither of us said and just kept going. I don't think that happens very often in business. I think that's different. For sure. <laughs> You mentioned Southern New Hampshire University and the work you did there. So being in the education, higher education business myself, watching it from afar, it's kind of amazing what happened there with the development of online business that became one of the top five, certainly in America, from a school that no one ever heard of before. It's probably fair to say on a national basis, for sure. How did that happen? How do you go from not being known at all? And and this is creating a business. I don't know how much is public, but you can provide some of the metrics of how successful you actually were because it became a gigantic success story, I think. It has been. And I should say, I didn't join at the beginning of that. That success is not because of me. I had a participant seat along the way, but it was kind of for a middle chunk of years there. So it had started, it was really starting to take off before I ever arrived. And they've had tremendous success since. I worked on a very specific project there, which was to help build a new kind of college built for a 42-year-old woman with kids who either went to some community college or life took over after high school or she couldn't afford higher education at all. She has talents, but never really had the opportunity. And so the first thing we built was a competency-based associate's degree program really built from scratch for her. It is, in fact, online. Part of that is because in her life, Getting to the local community college at seven o'clock every Tuesday and Thursday was just a non-start. Mm-hmm. It made it virtually impossible for her. It wasn't taking a traditional course and moving it online with videos and lectures and that sort of thing. It was 100% project-based learning where it was asynchronous, very immersive, very new and different, very, very low price points. The vast majority of the students that we were enrolling were not choosing between us and another school. They were choosing between this or never going to school. I found that very rewarding. We graduated thousands of students in that particular program. The university overall, as you said, has been very successful in building national scale online programs. Depending on the year, probably one of the biggest national nonprofit universities in the country. Part of their secret, and this happened before I was there, was they did a good job of recognizing what worked in the private sector and what didn't and taking the parts that worked and leaving aside the parts that didn't. And so what I mean is there were big colleges like University of Phoenix, I'm sure you and others have heard of. Sure. Had built a very sophisticated, capable marketing engine. They knew what their cost of customer acquisition was. They knew how to drive it down. If you applied to most colleges, they'd get back to you in weeks. If you filled out a lead form for University of Phoenix pre-2010, somebody would call your cell phone minutes later. And that was unheard of in higher education. What they didn't do, candidly, was focus on the product and the user experience. So their retention rates were poor, student persistence rates were poor. And what SNU did was take that marketing front end and combine it with a nonprofit mindset of using the same technology. So things like CRM systems to monitor student success and student retention and focus on our students persisting from course to course. Not just do you call them in 30 seconds if they fill out a lead form, but if they don't show up to a class twice in a row, have someone who already has a relationship with them reach out to understand what's going on in their life and why they're not there. That was a very successful combination of these kind of time-tested marketing techniques from the for-profit industry, but with a more student-centered philosophy from a nonprofit university. But that's really amazing because, I mean, how many students were there? Weren't there even tens of thousands of students? I left SNU in 2019 and there were, in a given year, north about 100 to 150,000 students enrolled when I was there. 150,000. And somebody's calling individual students when need be. And there were probably almost 2,000 student advisors who worked there. These are people who were not academics. They didn't build curriculum. They weren't assessing students' work. Their job really was to be the equivalent of a personal trainer, like someone to help keep you accountable and build a relationship with you. And a perfect personal trainer is a good analogy because many of us, when you're successful in life, you think like, oh, I'm busy. I need this to help me get through it. It's a priority for me. 
people are just as busy when they're not as successful in life. And having someone who really can be like your go-to person to keep you on track can be very measurably powerful. I didn't know about that. And I love the idea of a personal trainer type mindset, helping people stay on track. Because these are people that are not highly educated by definition. And they're 42 years old and they're busy doing lots of other things like living. They don't have the kind of muscle memory. They probably didn't grow up in that type of environment where you go to school when you're 18 and you graduate when you're 22 and then you go get a job. It's a pretty smart idea. Was it part of the business model from the beginning? So the university has been around for a long time, but as you pointed out, until the mid-2000s, it was more or less a nice, regional, fairly nondescript commuter school in the middle of New Hampshire. The lion's share of the credit, I've worked with a number of founders in my career. I work with one now who's a founder and CEO. I have found it to be fascinating to work with these people. They can really kind of breathe zero into one. It's a superpower. And I think about Paul in that same way. Paul LeBlanc was the president of the university before I was there and is still now. And I think of him kind of as a founder, even though the university had been there for 100 years, because he took it from that, from a couple thousand commuter students locally with a small budget, you know, reasonable local reputation, et cetera, and turned it into something that is just a fundamentally different institution. He'll say one of the reasons they did it is because they had to. I mean, this is the sort of college that would have gone out of business otherwise. And we've seen that with other non-differentiated middle market colleges. They're not Dartmouth and they're not the, the local community college. They took a big bet on investing in online education before other people did. But part of the reason was because they knew if they didn't have a clear strategy, they would just kind of petering out until there wasn't a reason for people to show up. And it was a good strategy and good execution. It served them well. And I should say served a lot of students well, too. In the program that I was responsible for, two-thirds of the students were first-generation college. And this is thousands of people getting a college degree for whom it was not a given. That kind of wasn't what the default path was for them in life. Many colleges, most of the people who show up, that is their default path. It might not be that school, but it's kind of that's the track they've been set on. That's not the typical students. That's tremendous. What do you think about online education as a business model? Not just the particular flavor that you were involved with. Say a little bit from things that I've been seeing. Dartmouth is now partnered with Coursera and be previously a little bit of edX, but Coursera is a much bigger. They have 100 million learners, as they call it. I actually just completed four courses for them. First time I ever really did anything like that. And I can tell you it was hard work to do it. 119 videos, all kinds of very applied exercises. And that was just launched back in early April. So it's fresh. But then if I think about who needs to go to university in the first place, if you can access knowledge. So there's LinkedIn courses, TEDx, Google has all kinds of things going on. There are these MOOCs, you know, like a Coursera type thing and Udemy and others. There's so much information available. And so it's possible for someone to get real knowledge about something in a very, very cost-effective way on their own terms. What mm -hmm. they don't get from all of that is, of course, a stamp, a certification that says X university. And that's kind of important. Actually, it's everything, except that I think it's beginning to erode as an advantage. I wonder what you think about it, because you've been part of it. And you may very well have, as part of your venture capital, investing in companies like this as well. Yes, I have three perspectives on this. One is having worked in that industry. Mm -hmm. And I should say, I have not done a lot of online learning myself. I'm of the generation where that wasn't the typical standard for most of my educational experience. Two is a parent. I have an eight-year-old and an 11-year-old, and I just lived through COVID. And that version of it was an utter disaster, just to be clear. I mean, the idea that you can just kind of take a regular brick-and-mortar classroom teacher without any particular training or tools and then expect them to be a remote educator for those students was hard. And third is as an investor. We invest in really interesting ed tech companies all across the country in the work that I do right now. We're not ed tech specialists by any means, but because of the breadth of the portfolio, there are fascinating companies like Synthesis School, which my 11-year-old son is starting to try out right now, which is a, you know, cohort-based, synchronous kind of puzzle and problem-solving school. And ultimately, what I think is that we are at the very early innings of this. The best versions of online education, I believe, are significantly better than the worst versions of in-person learning. But I've never seen an online experience that comes close to a good in-person experience. You're right that the credentialing is a big part of it. There's a line in the movie Goodwill Hunting where you probably have seen the movie, you know, Matt Damon is like the genius janitor who's sweeping the halls at MIT. He's talking to a woman in a bar and some annoying guy from Harvard comes over and they have a little back and forth. And Matt Damon says to him, like, there's nothing you got for your degree that you couldn't have gotten for $1.25 at the local public library. And that's kind of true. 
except very, very few of us actually have the focus and account self and time and accountability and engagement in our own learning to actually take advantage of that. The engagement and accountability, the peer learning, what happens outside the classroom. Mm -hmm. I think content is the smallest part of education in 2022. I think it's really important, but there's a very small number of thought leaders who are really driving new content. And that does scale because of the way people can communicate now. Anyone can access that content with a library card or a book or a web browser or anything. It is the engagement and the peer learning and the self-reflection. And sometimes for undergraduate students, it's like that coming of age experience and the credentialing and the cohort building and alumni network. Those are all part of what that experience is. And so I think the best online providers pick one or two pieces of that and focus on doing that really well. Mm -hmm. I don't know of anyone who's doing all of that right now. I look at what some universities do, and I'm not very popular when I say this with my colleagues, but I say we create a social club. Places like Dartmouth or Tuck, where you went and I teach, are extreme examples of that because of the nature. And it's not necessarily true for commuter schools, of course, but there's also a talent sorting mechanism that happens. You look at the value chain, so to speak, of higher education, those two things stand out as gigantic factors, but both of them, nothing or hardly anything to do with content, the work that people like me do that are researchers and academics. And that's the case what's really important in a higher education degree and experience that you're getting. You contribute to several pieces of this. Part of it is the actual in-person student engagement. I happened to be in Chicago at our Chicago office this week, though I live in New Hampshire. I had dinner last night with three friends from Tuck, one of whom I've seen once since graduation, two of whom I haven't seen in 15 years. One of them brought up the Yellowtail case. That's a case that I taught and have continued to teach for 20 plus years. <laughs> it wasn't me, though I've thought about and talked about that case to other people I've worked with before. But that was a combination of the engagement of them actually paying attention to it in the class mm. and the content. The content half, I think, scales almost infinitely, meaning there are very little barriers to people around the world being exposed to ideas like that, like the ideas in that case. But the engagement of actually remembering it 15 years later doesn't scale very well. Both of those pieces are valuable, but you can have a small number of content creators who really drive new research like you do, who that information can scale out almost infinitely. But you can't give that same level of engagement today with today's tools at that high level to a million people that you did to the 60 people that were in that class. Maybe you will be able to one day. I don't think in 2022 we're there yet. I'm not sure how that could happen, although with virtual reality, we could get a little bit closer when you see some of the prototypes that are out there. I had this issue come up a lot. The last book that I wrote around two books on super bosses, mm -hmm. pre-COVID, I would be traveling everywhere, giving talks and people said, great, great, great. This is so helpful for us. But you know what? There's not the 10 people you're talking to here. We have 10,000 people. What can you do for them? And they can't bring me in for small workshops. It's not realistic across the board. So you have to scale it. And the only way you could scale it in the technology and world we have now is by digital means like Coursera mm -hmm. or any other online course. But when you do that, you don't interact. You don't get the same level of interaction. I mean, there are a lot of people who are parents like me who watch their kids go through bad versions of online learning that have this kind of horrible taste in their mouth mm -hmm. because of it. And I hope that doesn't set it back too much because I think there's a lot of innovation that still has to happen. And I also think that good online education can still be better than bad in-person learning. And we should be honest about the fact that there's a lot of bad in-person learning. I mean, I have sat in lecture halls with 500 people in the classroom where no one was paying attention for an hour. That's not a good version of this either. Well, one of my critiques of higher education is that so often we have what I call commodity teaching. It's a set of ideas that are pretty much the same, no matter what university you go to. You call it a basic microeconomic class if you want to take something simple like that. Of course, on Roman history, it doesn't matter. It could be in any field. 90% of the content maybe more, is the same in 90% of the schools that are out there. Yeah. And if that's the case, what's the value added in being in person? I actually look at the music analogy, you know, where's the money being made? Music is through concerts. Streaming has really reduced the margins dramatically. I mean, there's always a winner-take-all world. And so Taylor Swift's still going to do fine. Adele's still going to do fine. But it's through the live performance where the real action is, the real money is. It's not exactly that way in higher education. I mean, it's much more expensive than online, but people that are teaching 
have a responsibility, not necessarily do an entertainment show because that's not what we know how to do in general, but make it an experience that they cannot possibly get anywhere else. I don't think that's generally done by most faculty in most schools. One of the guys at dinner last night is a assistant professor of accounting. By the way, he is one of the reasons I understood accounting in the first place because he was in my study group in business coaching you. (laughs) (laughs) And he was, and it was great. It's actually a good example of the sort of thing that true great in-person learning can provide. He's teaching now and he described how he often will kind of have what he calls flipped classrooms where students have to prepare in advance. The first half of the class is a quiz that basically doesn't count. And the second half is a discussion about the quiz. And his experience is they don't always prepare that well in advance and they tend to do fairly poorly in the quiz. But that second half of the class is gold because they've realized what they didn't know then. And they're really attuned to the conversation. Just that level of thought that he's put into kind of experimenting with different models and trying that and seeing that it works for me is very admirable and I think is part of being a good educator. That flipping the classroom is a smart idea. I think applying ideas before learning the underlying theory, if you will, is the way to go. And usually it's the opposite. It's learning the principles and then you think about how to apply it. But actually, and because you're going to mess it up the first time, that's okay. Right. It's called learning. And so I always tell that to my students, you will never get a safer environment than this. There's nothing that can possibly go wrong here if you screw up, if you answer something wrong, because everyone's smart enough to get by. Okay. Let's talk about alumni ventures. Maybe you could start by describing what it is. And then how did you get involved with that? There's an entrepreneurial ethos to everything you've done, but that's still a big career shift. So I joined the team as chief operating officer at Alumni Ventures. I'm now the president and COO as well. Alumni Ventures is a very active network-powered venture capital firm. And it's a different type of VC firm. The traditional version of venture capital is that you take money from institutional investors in very large amounts. You invested in a relatively small number of companies, have a big role in those companies, often take a board seat and try to adjust, shape the course of that company's success. And then ideally, some of them will be very profitable and that will return money to those institutional investors like pension funds or endowments or large family offices that invested. Alumni Ventures is a very different model where our investors are essentially everyday successful accredited investors. So the typical people who invest with us, it's not one or two or 10 big pension funds, at this point, about 8,000 individual accredited investors who are investing 100,000 or a quarter million or maybe a million dollars and into a portfolio of venture capital investments. The model is that by having a large number of investors and by building it around community-based affinity, it is a coincidence that it started as something called Green D Ventures, which was effectively a fund for some Dartmouth alumni to invest in Dartmouth-related startups, not affiliated with the college, but... That's how it actually started. Yeah, that was the first fund Ah, and it was an experiment and it worked really well. And then they tried it at a few other schools and those worked well. And actually now it does a lot beyond the schools. So we have a blockchain fund, a seed investing fund, a social impact fund, but it's all this overlapping networks of affinity. And the power there, the promise is that we don't take board seats. We tend to invest or be a co-investor. So a relatively small investment in a large number of portfolio companies. But because we have a very big network, when that company is looking for a connection or someone to hire or someone to lead their next funding round, Probably we know somebody they should talk to because we're not a 10-person Rolodex. It's thousands and thousands of people who are involved in that community. And because they have the affinity, most folks are a little more engaged and interested in helping out. This affinity idea is really smart. Whenever you hear an idea that sounds good, you wonder, why didn't anyone else do this? So is there anyone else doing this? Not in exactly that way. Part of the reason is that when Alumni Ventures started as Green D, really, it was very, very, very few options were available for individuals to invest in venture capital. Mm -hmm. There were well-established funds that had been around for a long time. But if you're going to invest in Sequoia's next fund, if you're not a Sequoia employee or a past investor, you're going to have to write a very, very big check, like north of $100 million dollars is quite possible for some of the most prestigious funds. It really wasn't one idea, it was the combination of two. It was building, taking this product, this asset class, and bringing it to new customers, but doing it through affinity. So there was a level of relationship. You know, I've invested in a couple of our funds. You can be excited about a startup that has a couple of folks who are graduates from Dartmouth. Doesn't mean I know them, but I'll know a little bit about their experiences in life. And it makes me a little more excited when they have a big success. And it also means I'm a little more likely to pick up the phone and help them somehow if I can. So it's that combination of bringing new consumers into this established market, but doing it through these affinity relationships has been very powerful. I'll tell you a quick anecdote that is a very similar concept in a totally different context. 
When I was doing research for one of my first books, Why Smart Executives Fail, which came out in 2003, I had done a lot of research and then I was ready to start interviewing people. That was a book about failure. I started by looking at people in the Dartmouth network who I thought were at a company that I was interested in learning more about. And the first round, I sent 20 emails saying, this is who I am, this is what I'm doing, would love to talk to you. And I got 20 responses. Maybe you won't get 100% in most schools. That's a Dartmouth thing, but still, and that's what happened. And I actually think it's an accident of history or luck that Alumni Ventures did start with a Dartmouth fund. I worked at Dartmouth for a year before I got my MBA at Talk. And I remember when I was there, which is right after that book came out, effectively. At the time, I don't know if it's still true, but it was something like 72% of all Tuck alumni would contribute as donors to the school every year. It was the number one business school in the country. Number two was Yale at like 39%. It wasn't that it was slightly higher. It was just a fundamentally different relationship. And I actually think that if Alumni Ventures had first experimented at Yale instead of Dartmouth, it might have just been that kind of good seed of an idea that was cast on so-so soil instead of fertile soil. And that doesn't mean it wasn't strong enough that it's been very successful at Yale and we've had some great funds with some nice exits. But I don't know if it started there, if it would have been quite the same thing. And so some of this is just luck. I wasn't one of the people who started it, but I think when Mike and others started this, the fact that Mike had gone to Dartmouth and saw the power of affinity and said, hey, let's do a fund for this. And a couple of the other co-founders saw that too. It was luck and smarts at the same time. Is there some type of business built around a network that's just around talent, not necessarily for creating businesses, but entrepreneurship, but something that's about people, whatever their field is. So, you know, of course, Dartmouth and every university has their alumni networks. Individuals are connected to their own friends. But is there a way of creating a valuation around people, which kind of sounds wrong in a way, but you know what I mean? Because I could tell you, having taught now for almost 30 years, I can probably identify the people with the greatest talent in the class. Oh, yeah. I'll make some mistakes, but I'll be more accurate than most others. And I'm not the only one who can do that. That's kind of interesting to know because, for example, there would be people who might want to say, here are the top 10 people that are valued in this class of super high potential. Let's invest in them. Let's pay their student loans, for example. That's happening actually in baseball. There's a company that does that. I'm not sure if you know about that one. I can't even remember all the details, but it invests in minor league players Yeah, and pulls the risk because only one out of 20 is going to make it and get a big contract. I think there are some people attempting innovations around that. There's a concept in higher education called income-based repayment or income share, ISA that is fundamentally that concept of instead of a loan, you're essentially kind of buying equity in that person's career. I think that folks have struggled to get that right. There are a lot of weird kind of agency problems and secondary effects that it's hard to execute that well. I will say in seed investing, so the earliest stage venture investing, we do kind of the full gamut of VC investing. So that's from two people with an idea and a cocktail napkin to a company that's raising, you know, at a multi-billion dollar valuation and Bain or someone like that is leading around. At the front end of that, the seed investing stage is where the heaviest weighting is on the quality of it. Often the people end up changing their product or even changing the market or the idea of the company. The earlier you are in the process, the more you are placing a bet on the people involved. The later in the process, it tends to be more about the business fundamentals and the proven revenue traction, competitive moats, profit margins, total addressable market. But early on, it's really heavily about the people. That's not an explicit way of what you're talking about. It's just the de facto way. That's right. It actually makes sense. And then there are these SPACs special purpose entities. In a way, you're betting on the person for that too. Investors are saying, yeah. I'll give money to this person to come buy a company and do something. So there are forms of this. Are the returns for alumni ventures comparable to the Sequoias out there? I don't know about Sequoia. Sequoia has been around for a very long time. So that's a hard data set to compare to. <laughs> Whatever we want to call the elite Sand Hill Road collection there in uh, Palo Alto. Alumni Ventures has been around for five or six years and we've been really happy with the returns. We publish them online on the website and I'll kind of generalize, but you should go to that to look at the specific details. But funds that were invested, these are 10-year long illiquid funds. So funds that were invested four or five years ago are for us often our typical fund will be returning maybe 2x the capital that was invested at that time. Some of our funds are at four or five X after a period of years. Some are less than that. It is a higher risk, higher reward asset class. We only serve accredited investors. People don't put their rent money into venture capital. This is where you take a portion of your portfolio and you put it in a higher risk, higher reward opportunity. And some people do it in a very broad, diversified portfolio. And some people will do it individual company level investments. Some of those do very, very well. How does this model relate to the whole issue of the challenge of women and people of color 
not having access to venture money, not nearly as much. The numbers that come out are just abysmal when you see the studies. Something like, what, 2% of all venture money goes to founders that are women, something like this. Yes. Is this part of the model? How does this play out with respect to that really fundamental problem that exists? I think it is a real problem. We have some insight into it because of the nature of our model and that we're a very active co-investor. What I mean by that is last year, 2021, Alumni Ventures was the third most active venture investor in the world, meaning we invested in more deals than almost any other VC in the world. Not necessarily more dollars. We're often investing a million or a few million dollars in a deal, not a billion dollars. So we see a lot of deals. Nowhere in our scorecard do we weight ethnicity as an example or gender. However, we find as a co-investor who isn't sitting on the board and is investing a relatively small portion alongside very well-established firms, Depending on the specific group, we typically invest in maybe twice the rate of the industry in terms of the rate of investments that we do in specific minority groups that are not as well represented in venture. And I think part of that is just a symptom of the fact that when it isn't as deep of a relationship, when we're not sitting on the board and we're just evaluating the business dynamics, that it frees us up from some of the biases that are often tacit biases that happen in the industry. That said, we track our own metrics. We're less white and male than the industry, but still a lot more white and male than most other industries. And we started a venture fellows program partly for this purpose. We've had 500 people go through this program that are overwhelmingly from underrepresented backgrounds. And the goal is to help people kind of get their first job in venture effectively. It has been a traditionally very closed off industry. And that is a problem. I don't know whether you know Jacques-Philippe Piverger, also a Tuck alum, who is the founder of Ozone X, a venture capital firm. And he was a guest on the Sidcast last season. And he talked about the advantage of investing in women and minorities. There's less competition for those deals because there is bias. And these are people that even get in the game as far as they have, are even more elite in a sense of their capabilities. I think there's truth to that. I only know him a little bit. He was a few classes ahead of me at Tuck. But in our model, where we are really focused on investing a lot alongside well-established firms. So we don't invest typically if it's kind of an unknown investor leading the round. For us, if you come from an underrepresented background in the venture ecosystem and you can convince a Sequoia or Andreessen or Lightspeed or Excel to lead your fundraising round, then in our book, that's like a double proof that you are an extraordinary individual leading an extraordinary team because you're already swimming against the current. I think there is some truth there that the folks who have to work twice as hard are accomplished people worth betting on. I skipped over this before as we were talking about this, your work at AV Alumni Ventures, but how did you end up getting this job and why did you choose to do this? Because it is, again, a shift. Obviously, from this conversation, I have a very unusual career. <laughs> and I've always cared about and been interested in startups. I worked on a startup while I was in business school, actually turned down a very exciting internship at Apple to stay involved in a startup here in New Hampshire instead. And have always been fascinated by that space. And I had followed Green D and Alumni Ventures for the years. For me, The thread that I have found that's most exciting about my professional work is bringing new people into a industry or a market or something that they can be well served by, but have not really participated in before. That's what I did at SNU. That's what I've tried to do in politics and motivating more people to get out and participate, even in high performing states like Hampshire, where a lot of people vote, huge numbers of people don't still. And what I saw at Alumni Ventures was kind of this happened to be in my backyard, extraordinary opportunity where they're really bringing an asset class that can significantly benefit millions of people in this country who really haven't had access to it before. It wasn't built for them. Part of what I'm living through in this lifetime is this moment of decentralization of power where all of these systems, education, finance, and hopefully politics, though it needs more disruption. The promise there is that if we bring more people into those markets that they haven't been well served by, that that ultimately can create stronger markets that are good for everybody. So it's a thread I never would have said, oh, this is what I'm going to go do as my career. It's kind of what I see when I look back in retrospect. And at Alumni Ventures, it was just a really exciting startup that seemed to have some success behind it. And I saw a huge opportunity and it was a team that I liked. So I joined a few years ago. We've seen huge growth since then. So it's been fun. Yeah, it's interesting when you say that looking back, you could see the thread and it's quite logical. Looking forward, you'd never be able to figure it out. And that's true for almost everyone. I always say that careers are crafted more than they're set in stone. 
most people go from step to step. One of my guests in a previous podcast called it zigzagging, and he says it's critical to life and success. If you're not zigzagging, you're just following step after step. You're not really experiencing things. You're not learning nearly as much as you can. I always like that idea. Well, we've been talking for almost an hour already. It's funny how that flies by. So I'm going to give you my famous last question, which is about advice, except this case, it's advice to yourself. It's actually particularly interesting for you because you've done these different things. Despite the thread you just described, you've done these different things. So if you could magically go back to the 21-year-old Colin Van Ostern when you were in college or whatever you were doing and lean over to him and say, if there's one thing you really need to know or one thing you need to do or not do, there's something that would be important for your life. There's no way you could have known that or didn't know that at the age of 21. What would that be? What would be that advice for yourself? It's a little bit of a hard question because I'm pretty happy with my life. It's not that I would want to steer myself in a different direction than I was headed. Look, I ran a very high profile race for governor and lost. Like I've done some fun things and I've done some hard things and failed a lot. Net, net, I feel pretty good about where things are. Here's the advice that I would give. Early in my life, I decided that there were two kinds of happiness. One is the kind that you get from accomplishment, hiking to the top of a mountain. And the other is the kind that you get from what you experience, a beautiful sunset. And oddly, these tend to be inversely proportional throughout your life. You're usually tired and sweaty at the top of the mountain or at the end of a really hard slog and work that like, you know, you're overweight and you've strained your relationships, but you just accomplished this really big thing. And then the flip side is like that summer you spent floating down the river on the inner tube with the beer, you didn't get anything done and feel a little unsatisfied. A lot of my life has been about trying to balance those two things, either in one set of work or from one job to the next. But my advice is that I think there's more than that. that if you just focus on that and you don't focus on your impact and relationship with other people, which is kind of this third important facet. I am 43 years old. I feel like it has taken me a lot of time to figure out that that third part is as important or more important than the other two. I hope I'm halfway through my life or less. You never know. But I think if I figured that third part out a little bit sooner, I would have been well served by it. And I hope that I'm figuring it out enough now to be well served by it now moving forward. Yeah, that's actually a great insight, Colin, because it makes me think about what is work-life balance, an overused term. No one seems to know what it is anymore, especially in the Zoom era. But a balance between accomplishment and experience and then a balance between the internal accomplishments and experiences for that matter, and then having an impact on other people. It's an interesting way to think about balance. I think I feel that way most at the hopefully end of COVID too, because in the last two years, my life has become like my pie chart of life is 100% my work, my wife, and my kids. And I love that. I love them. But I want that to be 70% of my life, not 100% of my life. I think there are other valuable, fruitful friendships, professional relationships, other things that are really important that aren't one of those things. And I haven't done that well during COVID and hope I can do better in that moving forward. Well, I think a lot of people would say something quite similar. This is one of those things, not over till it's over, but we're looking a little bit better, hopefully. Can't be any worse, touch wood, because of course it could be, but it won't be. <laughs> Colin Van Olsen, thank you for being on the SIDCast, for talking to me and all of our listeners and sharing your story. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Sid. Happy to join. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. The SIDCast is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative. Well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please consider giving us a five-star review, and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.